Oh, that's all. So in this round, we return once again to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. Yesterday, we followed the very classic strategy or sequence taught by Buddhaghosa in the Path of Purification. Today, as you might recall from the earlier cycle, we'll follow the approach taught by the Buddha himself. And that is just extending the field of loving-kindness to the north, south, east and west, above and below. And just extending, extending, almost like a sonic boom. A sonic boom of loving-kindness, just moving evenly out in all directions here. Now, there are various types of liturgy that can be recited as one does this practice. One you might try, I, I won't introduce it, but it's uh, really wonderful, is just to recite the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on loving-kindness. It's only about one long paragraph. It's a beautiful, beautiful paragraph. And it actually incorporates a bit of a compassion in as well, so it's really kind of a fusion of loving-kindness and compassion. But it's just, uh, it's just one of the most beautiful uh, pieces of prose in the whole Pali Canon. It's lovely, really, really lovely. So that can be recited, it often is. Or you can recite, there's a liturgy from the Visuddhimagga, which runs something like, may, may I be free of ill will. So first of all, the far enemy, the distant enemy, that which is diametrically opposed to loving kindness. First, may I be free of that which just completely smashes loving kindness. May I be free, and then may I, we, may sentient beings, be free, and this is the way it, it kind of rolls with compassion, then it comes into loving-kindness. May I be free of physical pain, may I be free of mental pain and anxiety, afflictions, and then finally the grand culmination is may, may I be well and happy, well and happy. So there's a sequence. But what I'd like to focus on, and I'm going to use a bit more words before the actual session, so when I'm at, we're actually meditating, I, I can use very few, so I'm going to front-load it this time. Um, something I would suggest that we try this time would be the, the really the classic Mahayana liturgy for cultivating measurable loving-kindness. It's easy to remember. Remember, the format is very similar for each of the four. So you might recall, may all sentient beings, but if you want to make that just a bit more ordinary language, may we all. Or as you're extending the field of loving-kindness, may each, may each, may each of us because it's good, you know, if, if in a romance, for example, in a romance, if, if a man and a woman are spe speaking with each other and they're just expressing their affection and so forth, they're not going to find contrived language. They're going to find ways of speaking. They just speak directly from the heart, right? Like poetry. And so similarly here, this is, this is language of the heart. So it should never feel contrived or something memorized or from, shouldn't feel like it's a translation, right? So it may, may each one, that's pretty nice English, isn't it? May each one, as we extend the field, imagine different sentient beings coming into the field of awareness. May each one, and here's how it goes, why couldn't each one, why couldn't every one of us find happiness and the causes of happiness? We start with a question, or kind of a rhetorical question. But in, in posing that question, there's almost already so much wisdom built in. I mean, there's some major, major working hypotheses or assertions built into that. 
Because otherwise, one could just pose that question and then write a whole, uh, write a whole book. This is why sentient beings cannot find happiness and the causes of happiness. We're basically dominated by our genes and, and the parental upbringing. And there's a recent article in the Time magazine about how our life is basically predetermined by what happens in the womb. So that's why. You had a really bad time in the womb, and that's why you can't find happiness. Next, you know. So there are multiple working hypotheses here. Um, but the, Buddha, the Buddhist hypothesis, of course, is, yeah, all of these are facts. That is, Buddhism is not entering into debate about genetic influences, neurophysiological influences, influences from the womb, from diet, from environment, uh, whether your mother was drinking coffee or drinking alcohol or what have you. I mean, there, these are a lot of factors, and this is what science is really good at. But beyond all of those, beyond the coarse mind, and for that matter, beyond the coarse body, there's subtle body, subtle mind. Subtle body, subtle energies flowing in the body. Subtle mind, of course, substrate consciousness. And so, given that all sentient beings have substrate consciousness, and should they access it, and pretty much it's going to be human beings and beings in higher realms, access the substrate consciousness vividly, luminously, clearly, then like bringing a bright light, it's a little bit like this. Somebody told me just today, had some experience very clearly, definitely, I think, completely authentic, experience of the substrate consciousness by way of lucid dreaming. Okay, so lucid dream, dream was uh, released, and then slipping into the substrate consciousness. But bearing in mind, this was just with the ordinary degree of clarity that we have in a a dream, a lucid dream, right? Uh, But then when got into the substrate consciousness, it was, to put it in English vernacular, not all that it was cracked up to be. (laughs) And that is, it wasn't blissful. It was just kind of like, hey, it's lonely in here. (laughs) You know, that was an accurate description. Accurate description. And why? Because the degree of clarity brought to it was ordinary. So you get there, and it's basically just by like being in an empty, vacuous space, and you're the only one there. (laughs) You know? So that could be a little bit of a letdown. Like, well, maybe I should get out of here and find some friends. You know? (laughs) Pop back into a dream again. Especially if it's lucid, why not, right? And so, that same space though, that substrate, that same dimension of consciousness, substrate consciousness, when we bring to it, or when we get to it, by way of beginning layer and layer and layer of obscuration, the nivarana, obscurations away, the obscurations of dullness, of laxity, and so forth, then by the time we get there, raw, naked, then the nature of the luminosity, the luminous nature of the substrate is completely unveiled, and that luminosity of the substrate consciousness is that which manifests, makes explicit the blissful nature of the substrate consciousness. Okay? So, since all sentient beings have that, and all they need to do is just access, and this is not even talking about Buddha nature, this is just substrate consciousness, then why couldn't they? You know, why couldn't they? Every sentient being is carrying with him or her self, the substrate consciousness, has already just lying dormant there, obscured, a dimension of consciousness that is blissful, luminous, non-conceptual. Why couldn't each one of us find happiness and the causes of happiness? Why not? What's to prevent us? Why couldn't we just peel away all those layers and discover our birthright? So, and then on a deeper level, of course, Buddha nature. Now we're talking about innate bliss, primordial 
primordial luminosity and purity of awareness. And every sentient being has that. Why don't we just pull away more layers through the practice of Vipassana, practice of Vajrayana, practice of Dzogchen, and so forth. Since all sentient beings have this already, why couldn't each one find happiness and the causes of happiness? So there's a lot of wisdom built into that. You know, it's a very loaded, and it is, a rhetorical question. Because we're assuming, as a really magnificent working hypothesis, we all do have that capacity. So there's the first one. And then, so, Why couldn't we all, each one, find happiness and causes of happiness? May each one find, may each one have, May each one find happiness in the causes of happiness. May each one find. Dembargyuchi. And then we slip more over into the Mahakuruna, or Maha, Mahamaitri mode. Dembardagijau. May I make it so that each one may find happiness in the causes of happiness. After all, I'm not just inert. I'm not, I didn't say I'm not a nut. I said I'm not inert. I'm not just sitting here, you know, doing nothing. I actually can have an influence on the world. So may I make it so? May I make it so? That better be coming from a pretty deep source, but even on a relative, le- relative level. Why not? Why not? As we encounter sentient being, sentient being, right? May I make it so? And then the final one really is deeply religious, I think very meaningful to religious. And yet if it's not meaningful to oneself right now, then don't do it. No, no problem. No problem. But for those who have that faith, May my Lama and the deity, referring to one's Yidam, bless me that I may be able to do so. So I'm, I've, I've just set myself a, a pretty noble aspiration. May I help every sentient being find happiness and the causes of happiness. And then all the help I can get, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> you know, because that's a big, big order. So if one has that faith, then why not? Why not? So there's the liturgy. And you can do as much or as little of it as you'd like, but I think it is extraordinarily meaningful. And it's especially meaningful we do it slowly. And not like I used to do it back in the monastery. We have to do it three times. So, you know, oh, I can't think that fast. That's why after a while I didn't want to do so much puja. The puja is going on at least 60 miles an hour and I'm riding on my little tricycle. Squeak, 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 squeak. Pew. I find that really hard. My mind's slow, you've noticed. You know? Very, very slow. <laughs> Life in the snow lane with it with a uh, what's it called? A rust a rusty tri- a, a rusty a rusty or tricycle. That's me. Not even the slow lane, you know, off on the on the ramp where you pull over when your car gets a flat tire. That's why we squeak, 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 squeak. <laughs> So if it goes nice and slowly, then maybe it sinks in a bit more deeply and doesn't just come off the top of the scalp. Now the relationship between liturgy, or and of course this is discursive meditation, often called analytical, but even though that's technically or literally a correct translation, 
often so-called analytical meditation isn't analyzing anything. We're not really analyzing anything in the cultivation of loving-kindness, but we are. It is discursive. So generally, I like the, the term discursive meditation, and then placement or concentrative meditation as the two major forms of meditation that we find in Buddhism. It might be worth spending just a couple of minutes showing how this fits into this particular practice. So some of you have had a good Galupa training, I know at least two, and I'm sure quite a few more, but it's not just Galupa, really good, solid, let's say, Madhyamaka training, or, tra or training in Vipassana. Then you'll know that as you're investigating, really enge engaging in ontological analysis, really investigating how phenomena exist, and maybe doing a parts and whole analysis, and you're, and you're investigating this really as analytical meditation, until you come and you're, you're looking for, seeking to identify that object to be refuted, and then you're checking, 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 and then you see it's not there. Not j and it's just a little side point here. It's not that you can't. It's not merely that you can't find it. That you have found that it's not there. That's a subtle and enormously important issue because it's really easy not to find something. Don't look very hard. <laughs> you won't find it, right? But this is something where you've lo you've looked exhaustively, definitively. And then when you see it's not there, then you know it isn't there. Not that you just couldn't find it because you didn't check carefully enough. And so there's that investigation, investigation. And then when you come to it, and the kind of the window opens, and you have some, some kind of a breakthrough, some access to it, it's exactly that point that you stop analyzing. You stop analyzing. And you just dwell there for a while. Just dwell there in that experience in that knowing, in that knowing, you're really developing shamatha on emptiness, right? But you're dwelling in that knowing, and you dwell and dwell and dwell, and then after a while, maybe five seconds, maybe five minutes, then you're really not knowing anything anymore. You're just kind of like, what? Was I doing something? Oh yeah, I was practicing vipassana. Okay. Roll up your sleeves, get back to work again, and go back until there's again a knowing, and then you sustain it. So. In many forms of meditation, then the object of meditation is something that we're attending to. And we're developing our stability and vividness with respect to that. Right? So now in the quiz time, in the meditative cultivation of loving kindness, what's the object of mindfulness? What? Sentient beings. That's right. That's right, sentient beings, one or more. Sentient beings, yeah, one or more. Maybe all sentient beings, maybe the sentient being right in front of you, maybe it's one you've brought to mind, like that. It's sentient beings. But now, you probably have heard that it's possible to achieve shama, to achieve the first jhana, in loving kindness, or compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. You can achieve the first jhana in all four of them. So, how would you know what are, you, what are you stabilizing? Where is the stability and vividness arising? If you're cultivating loving-kindness, and, and, and I want to set this up as a question, because I think if I do, then the answer will come stronger than if I just say it. Oh, Carissa, you're on a roll. I'm going to put you on a spot. Okay. That was right. Sentient being is what you're attending to. What are you cultivating? And that is, when, you, when this practice is going deeper and deeper, does it mean that you simply have a more and more vid, stable and vivid 
apprehension of the sentient being in mind, how do you know that this practice is really working? That's right. You're cultivating an aspiration. And so your stability and vividness, you know that's the essence of shamatha across the board. The stability just means continuity. The vividness is just that, the clarity. Is not in the image of how clearly, let's say, your mother appears to you, because that would just be straightforward shamatha on an image of your mother, which would be fine, but that's not loving-kindness practice. Indeed, the object is, let's imagine your mother, let's imagine you start there, but where the stability and vividness is arising is in the arousal and the maintenance or the sustaining of the aspiration, the loving kindness itself, which is a subjective mode of awareness. A subjective mode of awareness. And its pivot, its support, that's a good word, its support is your mother, all sentient beings, everybody in this room, and so forth. That's the support. But why, what's it supporting? because you're not there to practice shamatha on all sentient beings. It's supporting the subjective cultivation of this aspiration, this yearning. May you, as I'm attending to you, you're my support. I'm here to support you, but you're gonna hear, you're, you're, your appearance to my mind is to support me in the cultivation of loving-kindness. And then the stability and the vividness arises there in the loving-kindness. So it's an ongoing flow of loving-kindness with a greater and greater clarity, a luminosity, a brightness around it. A vivid, clear, wakeful experience of that aspiration, that loving aspiration arising. But now let's get this just into ordinary experience. And that is, this is especially easy, watching little children. If if your own children, it would be pretty easy. Watching grandchildren is extremely easy. Uh, but just generally, children are pretty easy to love, right? Just look at them. You, d- you don't generally have to look too hard to say, where's the lovable quality? Har, you know. You find it pretty easily. Most people can find that pretty easily. And so, so let's imagine you're a parent, and you're just sending your little five-year-old off to the first day of school. Imagine you've just driven to the school. Here's your five-year-old, already a little backpack, ready to head off to school, and there's a bunch of kids out there, and, and there's the mama watching her little, her, let's say, little boy going off to the first day of school. You know, she sees the other children are playing, and her little boy is about to join them. Right? And maybe she sees them mingle, and he talks with one, and he starts... She doesn't need to, as she is just, from her heart, effortlessly wishing, may you find happiness and the causes of happiness. May you enjoy school, learn a lot, be happy, make good friends. You know, she doesn't have to be reciting. May you find happiness in the causes of happiness. <laughs> May you happy. Copy and copy. What was that? Doggone it! What was that? <laughs> she doesn't have to work at the liturgy, because it's already flowing. So all she really needs to do is attend to her child. Because the loving kindness is already there, and as long as she's attending to the, to the child that isn't gazing over the principal or the traffic cop that's coming by and so forth, then all she has to do is sense the level, that sense of loving kindness, that affection, that warmth, that love is already there. All she has to do is just keep watching her child. Probably a smile on her face, and that's it. And she's developing shamat and loving kindness for her child. Right? And so that's the quality of it. That's the quality of it. Just that wishing, it's so simple, 
May you find happiness. The may you find happiness. The causes of happiness. Good friends, nice playmates, good teachers, conscientious teachers. A forty million dollar playground. That'd be nice. Yeah, that's what the kids here have. Not bad. And so, so the balance there. It's I gave the analogy of meditating on emptiness in the sense that you use your discursive mind until you actually apprehend that's what you're seeking, and then when you found it, you stop talking about it. You stop analyzing and you just go into placement mode, right? In a similar fashion, we'll use the liturgy. May you find, may, why couldn't you find happiness in the causes of happiness? May you do so. May I help? You know, and you arouse that until the, it's almost like a, oh, an engine, like you turn the key and turn the key and then after a while you turn the key and you, know, you hold it long enough and then boom, and then we all know you don't have to keep the key going because it makes a really bad noise. You know, once the engine's going, then lighten up and just let it purr, right? And so the turning of the key is the liturgy until the engine is running over. Okay, the great engine of loving kindness. And then you keep it going by attending to the sentient beings for whom there's loving kindness. If, it, if, it's, if at some point um, you're just kind of gazing at images or there's no particular feeling like, what? Then you can go back and do the liturgy again, okay? And rev it up until it starts going again. And in this way you're going from, just as in Vipassana meditation, you're going from a discursive meditation where you're kind of building the momentum up into concentrative meditation where you're just going with that flow. I thought of a nice example, I like kids' examples, but uh, one example that came up, popped up from my substrate was a little sc the scooter, a scooter, you know, two wheels, and we all know what it's like, you go, and then, you know, and then, and then just start slowing down, and go, oh, and until you come to a nice hill, and go, oh boy, and then you achieve shamatha, on the scooter. Right, because you don't need to go. You don't need paddle anymore, right? Because now it's just going oh, like that. So it's something like that. You use the liturgy like a little kid on the scooter. And then when you see you're kind of going, okay, you don't need to do it all the time. Sometimes just enjoy it, you know. And then ah, God. and so something like that. Something like that. Final point. And that is in the sequence. Why couldn't each one find happiness in the causes of happiness? May they, may, they may they find it. May I help them. And then the very religious part, which really kind of goes into refuge, into supplication, into prayer, is may my, my lama, the yidam, non-dual, if one is really practicing guru yoga, bless me that this may be so, that, that, I may, that I may do so, that I may be effective in that way. When you come to that point, then something you might want to try. I didn't make up the, I didn't make up the practice, but I'm like a chef drawing from little different bowls. And so here's a practice from another bowl. And that is, and it's really lovely. And you might try it this afternoon, because then I'll, I'll, need, I'll need to speak so little when we're actually doing it. And that is, if you've never tried it, you might enjoy this. And that is, you, as you get into the flow of it, and you're letting your awareness expand, and you're breathing out. Breathing out, if you like to visualize, visualize. But as you're breathing out and visualizing the light come from the heart, with every outbreath, may each one find happiness and the causes of happiness. Then as you breathe in, you can have in the back of your mind, you don't need to always have the liturgy going, 
you know, may I be blessed that I can facilitate this, that I can make this happen. And with each in-breath, you, you can imagine, again, visualizing, the light of blessings, compassion, loving-kindness, of all the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, the Yidams, all the manifestations of the Buddhas, all converging in upon you. Like you're breathing in the compassion of Avalokiteshvara and Tara and Buddha and all the gurus and so forth. Every in-breath, you're saying, okay, I've got a lot of support here. And it can kind of intuitively give you the sense that the well that you're drawing from, you know what that means, yes? The well that you're, like, drawing water out of a well. That the well that you're drawing from is not just your little psyche, like a little thimble. This is how deep my mind goes. I don't have much loving kindness. Just, whoop, all gone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> empty. <laughs> you know, that you're not drawing from the little tiny thimble of your own psyche as you're seeking to cultivate loving kindness for all beings. But you're drawing from the well of the compassion of all the Buddhas and breathing that in, receiving it. And then you're a recycling plant. You receive it and you recycle it, send it out. So then you feel, ah, good, I don't need to come up with all, all, the, all the loving kindness myself. All I need to do is be like a funnel, like a conveyor, a nozzle on the end of the hose, to imagine bringing in all the loving kindness of all the enlightened ones and then directing it. That's quite nice. So then you have to something to do with every in-breath and with every out-breath. And use the liturgy just as much as it's helpful. Okay? Is that enough for one afternoon? Okay, let's practice. And now I can use so few words, you all know it. Letting your awareness descend into and fill the space of the body. Gently and lovingly settle your body in its natural state. Your respiration in its natural rhythm. And accept the freedom and the luxury that is given to you now to set your mind at ease whatever concerns, even legitimate concerns, 
you may have about the past or the future. The past is gone, and the future will come in its own good time. But right now you do have the freedom to let your awareness remain at rest, at ease, clearly, in the present moment, releasing all else. Settle your mind in its natural state, calming it with mindfulness of breathing. And now imaginatively move from the realm of actuality to the realm of possibility. As you envision your own flourishing, what would make you truly happy?
with every out-breath arouse the yearning. May I find happiness in the causes of happiness. Or you may recite the whole liturgy if you wish. And with each out-breath, breathe out the light of loving-kindness. And imagine finding the well-being that you seek. And extend the field of your awareness, the field of loving kindness, to those in front of you and behind, to the left and right, north, south, east and west, above and below. With every outbreath, gradually expand this field of loving kindness. as this field of light expands around you, embracing every sentient being within this expanding field.
if you wish, with each in-breath. You may breathe in the light of compassion of all the enlightened ones to the north, south, east, and west, above and below. Breathe in, breathe out. Knowing full well that this is your imagination at play, as you extend this field of light, imagine the sentient beings around you actually finding the happiness, the causes of happiness that they seek. Imagine your aspiration being realized.
It's a private note, no, no problem. All is good, all is good. Nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about at all. That was the only mail. So how's your practice going? All well? Any problems? Jacob. Um, two questions. One is uh, about the practice of loving kindness. Um, I found just now when we were go I was trying to do the liturgy, and uh, it felt like it was working. Like I, I a lot of it was happening, but yeah. um, after a while, it started. I started feeling kind of manic, like uh, as. Um, how to say? At a certain point, I started feeling like very joyful about I could, very, very joyful. About, joyful. Like I, I mean, this uh, question: Why couldn't everyone? And then thinking, joyful. Oh, everyone can. Yeah. And then that, that's acceptable. Yeah. But uh, after a while, I started feeling a, some um, a bit manic. Aha. Uh -huh. Manic, like right. Too much energy. Yeah. And yeah, if you're bringing in all the loving kindness of all the all, of all the Buddhas, that can be pretty intense. So, um, come back to the, you, you might have not heard, have heard me say this before, but actually it's quite important. Um, relax. <laughs> <laughs> Easy data. Light touch. Light touch. Yeah. It's, because the manic is, is it's um, intensity. Intensity. Intensity is correlated with vividness. Vividness is a really good peak of the pyramid. But just having that sense of expansiveness, so the energy coming out is going to diffuse, release, and so forth, and like that, and then breathing in, but just kind of getting into that, the flow of it, but very gently touching it, very gently touching it, bearing in mind that all of these active forms of meditation, for all the four measurables, they're really, from, from a Dzogchen perspective, they would say, ah, oh, the jumare, that's jumma, oh, that jumare, it's contrived. Zogchen perspective. Oh, you can see my expression, I hope, yeah. It's not the spontaneously activated, immeasurable, and great loving kindness that just arises spontaneously out of Rikpa. But if Juma is the best you can do, okay. <laughs> so it's it's um, and of course the jokes and know perfectly well, these are excellent practices, you know. And they come up all the time in Dzogchen literature, the active cultivation of bodhicitta, refuge, and so forth and so on. But they've got a real point here. And that is all this, because what they're saying here is something very simple, and it's true. As we're engaging in such practices, we are, in fact, reaffirming a delusion. In all likelihood, as we're bringing to mind other sentient beings, we're reifying them. Hey, you over there, can you hear me? I'm way over here, you know? Existing from their own side, by their own nature. And the duality of subject and object, and the reification of the self, and so forth. And then striving, striving, striving. In, in really, really hardcore Dzogchen literature, the word Tsumba is often almost like a dirty word. Tsumba means striving, effort. It is used on occasion, non-pejoratively. But Tsumadan, Tsulwa. Tsulwa, Tsulche, effortful, 
contrived. Oh. <laughs> you know? And so what we're talking about here is complementarity. Because all of the great Dzogchenpa practitioners that I've ever even heard of are also engaging in the more conventional rel or relative practices. But to know it in the back of the mind is kind of nice. You know, that all these practices are really designed simply to unveil the fathomless capacity for loving kindness, compassion, and so forth that lies there in your own rigpa, in your own pristine awareness. So then all the, the manic quality disappears when you recognize, oh, I don't have to do it all myself. I know for the for first, oh, especially the first 10 years of my training, it was really intensively Gulupa and some Theravada. So it was developmental and then more developmental. And I know, I, you know, and I was young, so I had a lot of juice, a young man, a lot of, put all my testosterone in it with. And it really felt to me like, no matter how much I'm doing, I'm never doing enough. You know, I hear about Milarepa, I'd hear about other great yogis, and I, and was, I always fell short. I'd hear, you know, I would get in there and I was studying with all the Tibetans and I'd be memorizing texts. And I'd say, wow, I'm, I'm memorizing one page a day. And then I'd read the life story of Tsongkhapa, 18. Oh, oh. <laughs> how can anybody do that? <laughs> you know, so it felt like never can do enough. And, I never, and, I, and, you know, it can be a little bit discouraging. But then you balance it out. You balance it out. Yeah. So that's the short answer. Go ahead. The other one actually relates with the same issues um, that, that you were talking about with uh, Dzogchen and the four immeasurables. Um, I, I was uh, reading a while ago a text uh, by Longchenpa about uh, that there's a section on the four immeasurables. Yeah, I, I think I have it on my computer, yeah. Um, and yeah. he talks about this Mikche uh, and Mikmepe. Exactly. Um, so yeah. Mikche and Mikmepe is with and without support or object. Yeah. I'm just curious if you could talk a bit about those that approach, like, uh, to the four measurables? And, um. Sure, a little bit, a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's talking about the, the summit of the mountain. That is, Mikje, with the support, is what we're doing, what we're doing. And that is, we are attending to. So we are basically at this point, uh, that is, everything in its, in its own good time. And that is, we don't try to overcome all delusions at the same time, because we'll probably wind up not overcoming any of them, right? But we go from coarse to subtle, course, the subtle, which means in the earlier phases and the medium phases of the cultivation of these four measurables, we're not challenging the dualistic grasping. We're making it benign. We're making it benign instead of, you know, not. And so, and we're not challenging the, the inherent nature or grasping onto inherent nature of subject, optic, and so forth. Uh, and so there's mikje, that is, with the support, having the sense there's somebody over here doing the practice, somebody over, and somebody over here who I'd like to really unveil or cultivate more deeply these qualities that are just so obviously good. And I think that's one of the most important points here, as the Buddha counseled to the kalamas in the, in the, uh, the very, very, very famous sutta, uh, the kalama sutta, uh, when he's talking to the skeptics, he said, well, here's one thing that you just don't need to doubt. And he talked about the four measurables, right? Cultivate these, then you don't need to doubt this one. No matter what, reincarnation, no reincarnation, karma, no karma, this is still good, period. I thought that was just, I really love that. So we start there, and we're not challenging all of our, our delusional assumptions, which are at the root of suffering, but, they're, but some things are more explicitly roots of suffering than others. And so we work there, and then 
there are multiple levels there. I remember having conversation, I was more in the room rather than having a conversation. No, I was part of it. It was 19, oh, several, several years back, maybe five, six, seven years back, we had a, uh, oh, a summit meeting, we're rather self-congratulatory, self a summit meeting of people working in the scientific study of meditation. It took place in, in Michigan, in Michigan. His Holiness was there, and then just a number of the top researchers, Richard Davidson, Cliff Saron, other people, Matthew Ricard was there, Joseph Goldstein, the Vipassana teacher, he was there. Um, I was there, obviously. And but Matthew was there, and one of the things they'd studied in Richie Davidson's lab was this mikme ninja. They really studied open presence, and this objectless compassion has been a major thing. Uh, they've studied the type of meditation they've studied, studied there in terms of, uh, especially MRI, fMRI. And the question came up: Well, exactly, in what way, when you go, when you're doing that, in what way are you objectless? And so I will just give, because I've studied this, and I, I, I've studied it, and, and I was part of that conversation, I'll give two approaches. And that is there's the, the, the simple, conventional, let's say loving kindness, although that was compassion, it's, it's the same. So let's say loving kindness, okay? Because that's what we just did. And so there's the, let's say the purely conventional mode, relative mode of cultivating loving kindness, that's with the support, and it's not really trying to reinforce the delusional notion of I am inherently existent, it's just not challenging it. And there is a person here, and the person has a name, and I am attending to sentient beings, and they do exist, and they do want happiness, and I would like them to find happiness. And so, we're just leaving it there. Mata mache, without investigating, without analyzing, without realizing emptiness, but not necessarily reinforcing the delusion either, we're basically putting that on hold. right? And so there's the conventional approach. And then, as one gets into stride in stride in that, and, and one has had other teachings, not just in the four immeasurables, then one, imagine, one brings in the teachings that one has received on Madhyamaka, the middle way view, on Vipassana meditation, on investigating, is anybody really there from their own side, realizing that they are not, and yet conventionally they are there arising as, as empty appearances. Right? But they're still there. And the and Tsongkhaba, again, he's just so brilliant at this point of emphasizing that although sentient beings, as well as clocks and asteroids and supernovas and everything else, although they are empty, as phenomena that are merely designated, as phenomena that are merely arising as appearances, as empty appearances, even with that conventional, that relative status, they still have causal efficacy. In other words, they still, although I don't like the verb, they still matter. They still matter, right? And so, bringing more and more of this realization in, so one can imagine that if one really wanted to venture into these deep, the deep end of the pool of the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness without a support, without an object, one might first spend a session... Now, this is, again, out, more or less outside the context of this retreat, per se, but really meditating on the emptiness of oneself and others. It's going right into Vipassana meditation and getting some sense of it, some taste, and then just segueing smoothly right from that. And while I and all of the sentient beings are devoid of inherent nature, arising mu purely in the mode of dependently related events, 
appearances arising, each one devoid of its own inherent nature, arising as empty appearances, nevertheless, every sentient being wishes to find happiness. And may every empty sentient being find the happiness they seek. Right? So that would be objectless in the sense of, as one is attending to sentient beings, one is doing so with the realization, no inherent nature. Objectless in the, in the sense of devoid of the object of refutation. Right? That's a possibility. And then at a deeper, so that's, so here we are, we're going right from coarse mind, shamatha, practice of shamatha, cultivation of shamatha, to vipassana. What would be the next step? Tekchut, breakthrough to pristine awareness. And this would be, the practice here, would be, just as in the preceding one, you'd first meditate on emptiness and get some taste, some experience of emptiness, and then sustaining that, just like in Vajrayana practice. If you're not going to realization of emptiness, you're doing a very medi- a very benevolent cartoon, maybe a virtuous cartoon, but it's still a cartoon, because you're just overlaying your cartoon on reified reality that you've not questioned, which is it's a game. But in authentic practice, of course, of course, Omn Svabhava Shuddha Sabadama Svabhava Shuddha Ham. You start there. Om Svabhava Shuddha Sabadama. Om Svabhava. Om Svabhava Shuddha Sabadama. Om. The nature of all phenomena is empty. Om Svabhava. The nature of all phenomena is pure pure as an empty of inherent nature. Om Svabhava Shuddha Savadhamma Svabhava Shuddha Ham I am the purity of nature of all phenomena. Ho ho! So realizing that's, that's just one of the most incredible mantras that was ever emerged out of the Rigpa. Because that's your entry into the sadhana, right? Dissolving all conventional appearances, all impure appearances, releasing all reification, and not only realizing reification, which is kind of what we do when you fall asleep, but realizing the emptiness of all phenomena and seeing that that emptiness is none other than dharmakaya, and I am that. And then go the sadhana, right? Well, in similar fashion, that's for state regeneration. In similar fashion, if you're going the Shamatha Vipassana Tekshut Tutkel route, the four-step approach, then Shamatha Vipassana, Vipassana is the same, and then having gained some taste, some realization of the emptiness of inherent nature of self, other, all phenomena, then either through your own practice, and it can be done, just simply having received teachings and then going into the meditation with the Dzogchen view, Dzogchen meditation, embedded in the Dzogchen way of life. One can do it that way. That's really good news. Uh, or if one has the extraordinary good fortune to have a profoundly realized, authentically realized Dzogchen master who can not only perform the ritual of pointing out instructions, but actually has realized Rikpa and actually can point out Rikpa from Rikpa. Uh, 
then one way or another, gain the taste of Rikpa itself. Sustain that. And while sustaining that, allow compassion to arise. And now it's being done in a context where there's no bifurcation of subject-object. It's beyond all conceptual framework. And the compassion is the rikpetzel. It is the creative effulgence, creative display of rikpa, spontaneously arising with no object. It's authentic compassion. But it's a beam of light that has no target, that stops. It's just sheer, unmitigated, naked, raw, primordial compassion with no boundary and no object. But it would be like being, I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I should have that as a caveat. But pretending as if I do, imagine one is in deep space, so deep space that there's just you can't even see any stars. You've gone so far. It's just total deep space. And then imagine in deep space, you are the star. Well, you're not illuminating anything. Because it's just deep space everywhere. So nothing around you is bright. But there you are, effulging, displaying quadrillions of photons every nanosecond in all directions, a radiant burst in all directions. That's no object. But should anything come within that space, it will be illuminated immediately. It will be touched and illuminated by that which you're already emanating. So the compassion has no object until an object arises and it's immediately illuminated and warmed by the light of your compassion. So, having said that, I'll re-emphasize the point that I made at the beginning. I don't know what I'm talking about. But maybe that's not entirely misleading. Okay? I know about, there's some things I do know about. I mean, I, I don't want to pretend like I'm humble here. There's some things I really do know about. Um, delusion, I've got a really good, <laughs> got a good handle on that. I mean, I, I can speak from first-person experience. I have some direct realization. And not only realization, but confidence. I really do know how to be deluded, and I can do it continually with a lot of stability and not that great clarity, but stability. And craving and hostility, I really... I pretty well mastered those as well. So there's some things I do know. I don't want to pretend like, you know, I don't know anything. I really do know some things. <laughs> anything else? We could really surprise the socks off of them and show them up, show up at 15 minutes early and that would really startle them. Or we can just take a break. Anything else? Good. Take a break. <laughs>